For this episode of Love Itself, I have collaborated with Papier, which is a perfect fit because I am someone who loves stationery. I've written in diaries and journals since I can remember, and I love writing lists to keep myself organised, so I was so happy when I came across the unique and beautifully designed personalised stationery that Papier offer. They collaborate with artists and designers such as Rachel Cocker and Matilda Goad, through to brands such as Mother of Pearl and Desmond and Dempsey. Whether you want a notebook or a diary to hopefully fill with plans for 2021, Papier will have the perfect design for you. You can also embrace some good old-fashioned letter writing with sets of personalised note cards and writing paper. Discover Papier's stationery collection at papier.com and listeners can get 15% off their first order with the code CRESSIDA. Hello, my name is Ian McGilchrist and I agree with the poet Dante that love is what moves the sun and the other stars. Hello, I'm Cressida Bonus and welcome to a very special episode of Fear Itself. We are changing direction and talking about love itself. It seems to me that love is the opposite of fear and that it has the same power over us and our lives. Love can change what we do, how we feel, and our entire outlook on life. It can motivate us to do amazing things, but it also can be paralyzing in its intensity. In these special episodes, I will be talking to my brilliant guests about what love means to them. My guest this week is Dr. Ian McGilchrist, a fellow of All Souls College, Oxford, a fellow of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts and former consultant psychiatrist and clinical director at the Bethlehem Royal and Maudsley Hospital London. He has published original articles and research papers in a wide range of publications on topics in literature, philosophy, medicine and psychiatry. He is the author of a number of books and is best known for The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World. This book is a product of 20 years of research and which I believe to be one of the most important books of our time. Could the problems in the modern world be influenced by an imbalance in the human brain? And how do the left and right hemispheres of our brain differ and make sense of the world? Hello, Ian. Uh, hello, Cressida. Thank you for asking me to join you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here. As I said to you before, I've got, I, there's just so much I want to ask you. I almost feel slightly overwhelmed. <laughs> I have got books of notes from all your work. But I just wanted to start with saying that you, you haven't always been a psychiatrist. You're a literary scholar and you didn't train in medicine until you were 28. So how did you discover this theory of the divided brain and why does it have such an important meaning for us today? Well, that's a good question. Um, really, I've always been interested most in philosophy um, and I intended to read theology and philosophy, but I was told you can't read that. It's a non-honour subject, which in 1972 it was at Oxford. So instead I read English, which was what I'd taken the entrance exam in. But I was always interested in the philosophical aspects of how we look at literature. And effectively, something stood out for me, and I tried to articulate it in the first book I wrote, to sum it up in a sentence, was that in the past, people, great minds, imagination, had taken enormous pains to create something entirely unique. 
and embodied in the sense that it it couldn't be paraphrased. It just was there like a, a, a beautiful Persian vase. You, you, you couldn't chop bits off it and find out what it was, you know. It also spoke to you implicitly, that once you sort of decoded it and so on, you got left with nothing. And the problem for me was that when people in seminar rooms started to talk about poetry, what they did was they... they took the unique about it and replaced it by the general. They took the embodied and replaced it by the abstract. And they took the implicit and replaced it by the explicit. And it seemed to be almost necessarily working in exactly the opposite direction from the one in which we should approach a work of art. Um, I realised that I wanted to be involved in a world in which you could see how the mind and the body related, how um, when something went wrong with the brain, it actually changed the whole way of being of a person. Or when something changed in their mental world. It actually had physical effects because I saw the problem I'd located in literature as essentially a mind-body problem, taking something that was embodied and that spoke to me as an embodied being with emotions and with many things that are intuited and turned it into something entirely abstract, um, like a like a electronics manual. I went off and studied medicine and I then went to the Maudsley and uh, it's a big teaching hospital for psychiatry and neurology in London. Uh, when I was there, there training as a psychiatrist, um, I came across the work of John Cutting, a colleague, um, who'd just written a book called The Right Cerebral Hemisphere and Psychiatric Disorders, which was intriguing to me because um, in medical school, it basically everything was to do with the left hemisphere and really nobody cared very much about the right hemisphere. And he was giving a lecture on this topic and I just decided to go to the lecture and it changed my life because effectively what John had been doing for 20 years was sitting at the bedside of people who had something going wrong in their right hemisphere and noting what happened to their experience of the world. Everybody talked about the left hemisphere because, you know, problems with speech, problems with your right hand, very obvious... Even a boneheaded doctor can see that. But actually getting the stuff out of what happens after the right hemisphere uh, is damaged was more interesting. And um, uh, three of the things he mentioned was that the right hemisphere understands the implicit. It understands metaphor. It understands jokes. It understands tone of voice. It understands facial expression, body language, all the ways in which we communicate other than just in the words as a computer would understand them. Secondly, it's much more in connection with the embodied. So it actually it has what's called the body image in it, unlike the left hemisphere, which is not just a visual image but a kind of sense of the body in, in all modalities. Um, it has more connection with the emotional and physical side of us. And um, the third thing he mentioned, amongst many, the, the, the ones that struck me, were that the right hemisphere understands the unique case, uh, whereas the left hemisphere takes things out of context and generalises them. And I realised that what I'd been getting at when I was trying to articulate the problems in the way in which academics approach literature was that they approached them in an utterly left hemisphere way. So they took the implicit which the right hemisphere alone understands and articulated it explicitly. I went up to him in a huge state of excitement afterwards and said, that's so interesting. And then I read his book and I gave him a copy of my book Against Criticism and it was a meeting of mine as we researched together. And that was the start of 20 years of me finding out more about what the real differences are 
Because as you know, Cressida, um, there's a kind of pop psychology thing about hemisphere differences. And it's very, what I found was very different from that. And people said to me, don't get involved in this area because it's like tacky. It'll, you'll never get anywhere. People will just brand you as a pop um, psychologist. So anyway, anyway, I, I took the bit between my teeth and got on with it. <laughs> because that's interesting because the pop psychology side of it, that was very sort of the right is about love and the left is about you know no emotion at all and actually what you're saying is it's not what they see it's it's how they see it for example I was actually driving to London this morning and I was listening to listening to a piece of music this beautiful piece of music and um and it and it moved me to tears and I thought gosh what a coincidence that I'm now going to speak to you this morning because is that was I thinking is this the right hand side of my brain working (laughs) is that the case then when I'm listening to that piece of music or when I'm reading a piece of beautiful literature or seeing a, a play that's really moved me is that my right hemisphere in a word yes um as I stress in the book both hemispheres are working all the time, of course, and uh, they both take part in almost everything that we do, so that in the understanding of the language in a play, for example, the left hemisphere plays a part. But the key part is played by the right hemisphere, because as I say, it understands the implicit meaning, it understands how metaphors work, and it's also much more in touch with Um, the physical experience of music, which after all is a very physical thing. And for most people who are not professional musicians, almost all of music is appreciated by the right hemisphere. So are the dangers, because you say in your documentary, The Divided Brain, you say we behave as if we have right hemisphere damage. Could you speak a bit more about that? Well, I was very struck when I was giving a talk in Toronto, I think in 2012, And afterwards, a teacher came up to the microphone to to ask a question. And she said, I teach five to seven-year-olds. And uh, my colleagues and I have noticed that just in the last three or four years, we have to teach children how to read a human face. And that struck me as really staggeringly interesting and, and rather frightening, because it's a very hard thing to do to teach somebody how to read a human face. You gather it by being in constant contact with human beings and looking at them. Put it together with some information I've got from teachers writing to me who don't know one another, but who say, can you explain this? Um, All my teaching career, and I've been doing it for 30, 40 years, I give my class a a test once a year. um, And I can only remember really one person who found it very difficult. But in the last few years, I find that 30% of people find it difficult. Um, What was that task? It was basically one of sustained attention. And if you put that together with a third piece of information, which I'm not sure how robust it is, but in any case, it it has looked at um, cohort by cohort over the last um, uh, three or four decades, uh, young people and their empathy, and has decided that they're less empathic now than they were 40 years ago, which may surprise people, because there's a lot of public noise about things that makes people feel they're being empathic, but they're not. I mean, a lot of the strident shouting um, and sort of cultural wars that are going on now have 
almost nothing to do with empathy. They have something to do with power struggles. They're often quite narcissistic. Um, they're often violent and aggressive. And that's all very left hemisphere. And they see people in categories, you know, whereas the right hemisphere sees everyone as an individual and realises that people are complex. We're getting into a terribly crude world. But to revert to the moment in Toronto, if you were to ask neurologists anywhere in the world, could you name three things that really quite uncontroversially make the right hemisphere um, stand out uh, in its contribution to the human experience? They would say reading faces, sustaining attention and empathy. Those three things are very important. Mm -hmm. And so feelings like anger, irritation, and looking actually specifically at fear, because it's a, this podcast is called Fear Itself, even though we're doing a special episode about love. Can you talk a little bit about fear? Because it, it, it is fear the left side? No, no, uh, not really. Um, fear is something that doesn't lateralise. In other words, both hemispheres contribute to it in different ways. And it's a very complex thing, fear, because, of course, there are many kinds of fear. There's having particular phobias about certain situations. There's, you know, at the other end of the scale, there's having a sort of general existential angst about existing, you know. Um, and it can be part of an agitated depression, or it can, so it can be so many things that it would be quite wrong to generalize about hemispheres in relation to fear. The emotion that most strongly lateralizes in the brain is anger, and it lateralizes to the left hemisphere. So the left hemisphere is not this cool, reliable customer. It's very unreliable. It jumps to conclusions. It, it makes quick and dirty judgments, and it quickly gets irritated and angry. And I, I feel maybe with all the technology and, uh, you know, all the uh, modern day life, that perhaps, would you say, are we becoming more disconnected rather than connected? Obviously, on the face of it, we're connected because things like this, you know, I'm on the Isle of Skye, you're in London, we can see one another, we can talk and so forth. But it's not the same as spending leisured time with people that you love. And you can be in the situation where you're so pressured, there's so much to keep up with on social media, that effectively you can have tons of followers or friends, in theory, online, but not much deep friendship and love in your life. So I think that can be a danger these days. And also we, you know, we're so uprooted from community. You know, this has damaging effects on society. That's what you're saying is because the left hemisphere is beginning to dominate over the right because we're becoming more grabbing and grasping. Yes, I mean, I wouldn't say it's beginning. I see this process as having been going on now for about 200 years. Since the Enlightenment, which very much made us prize reason over and above everything else, we have decided that actually, which no Enlightenment thinker ever thought, that we should only use a kind of logical rationality of a kind that makes us very unreasonable. <laughs> There's a distinction between following a logical path and being a reasonable human being. And it used to be enshrined in law. You know, that the law says this, yes, but when you take the whole circumstances into account, then we see this in a different way. So that's a left-right hemisphere distinction. So what I think is that through the founding of America on entirely enlightenment principles and its... Um, power coming from a mercantile base, which is very much about competition, uh, getting as much as possible, 
um, and the British Empire overreaching ourselves administratively um, and also um, getting stuff. I think that we have got into a a frame of mind where we prioritise what the left hemisphere says over what the right hemisphere would tell us. I should point out that, of course, I'm not suggesting that something has actually physically happened to our brains uh, in the last couple of hundred years. You know, if you scan somebody's brain in the 18th century now, you wouldn't see any massive differences. But the, the way I look at it is it's more like, um, you know, tuning into more than one station on a radio set, which you might do to begin with, and after a while you might get stuck on tuning in into only one channel. That's the way we're doing it at the moment. We're tuning in only to what the left hemisphere tells us. So Einstein said this this wonderful thing. He said, the rational mind is a faithful servant, but the intuitive mind is a precious gift. Everything that you've just said makes me think that perhaps we're we're losing instinct our in, intuition through through modern life because are we born with you know that natural intuition you know we're we born with a balanced right and left and through time and through our environment we lose it and we don't listen to it it's very germane to the book i'm now writing um, in which i look at science reason intuition and imagination as the four main paths we have to reach truth um, and I think that the common reaction nowadays is that science and reason will lead you to truth, but intuition and imagination will lead you astray. Um, in fact, I find that when you look at each of these things, they need the others as well. So it's not a matter of just using one or even two. We need to draw broadly. And I should also point out that, for example, reason and science are not by any means a purely left hemisphere uh, matter. In fact, the contributions to science that are really valuable and to mathematics are made by the right hemisphere. The left hemisphere is good at the procedural stuff. And uh, you're right, we do. We are born with intuitions, and it is quite true that intuitions can lead us astray. But in fact, you can be led astray by following reasoning, very badly astray. We shouldn't stop doing them. We should just know their limits and know how to appraise them and constantly use all our faculties, not just the narrow one of, well, this is what my algorithm tells me. If we are aiming for a balance of both sides, how do you think we get there? How do we find a balance? It may be hard because one of the things about being in the left hemisphere mindset is that you don't know what it is you don't know. You're not aware of all the stuff that's out there that isn't in your picture because if it doesn't fit in with your picture, you just deny it exists. So we first of all have to be aware, and I see my work as, I mean, obviously, I'm not saying my work is an answer to our problems, but it, it's my contribution in that after reading the book, most people respond by saying, this is stuff that I, I kind of knew at some level, but had never been able to articulate, and it had been pushed out of my life. And after reading you, I suddenly realised how important it is, and I'm reincorporating it. So that's a bit of a help. I think there are things that we can do individually that would help us. Um, number one, slow down. Um, take it as axiomatic that spending a lot of time slowly absorbing something peacefully and getting to the depth of it is more important than skating over the surface of life for 70 years. Um, take it as axiomatic that things like meditation, being silent, stilling the voice that's constantly chattering in your brain, um, being present in the moment, um, not just constantly reinterpreting it and 
putting it in a box marked, oh, one of those. You know, the left hemisphere is always going, oh, I see it's one of those. So it sort of pigeonholes, categorises, and then it's actually lost the vividness of the reality. And most people, a lot of their time, spend actually in a representation of the world, not in the actual world, in a picture of the world or an icon of the world, not in the actual being. So to get back to that would be very, very important. I think that certain practices like reading poetry, listening to music, uh, stopping uh, being frenetic as far as you can. I understand that that may be a luxury for many people, but it's it's hardly a luxury in the sense that it's not at the fringe of life, it's at the core of life. Um, spending more time in nature, very, very important thing. At a kind of more global level, um, there are things like education, uh, rethinking what we're doing in schools and very much rethinking what we're doing in universities. Skipping forward of what we were just talking about, nature, I know you love nature and I know you live in the Isle of Skye which I bet is so beautiful so when I asked you um, what you think love is and you said love is what moves the sun and the stars which is beautiful um, what is this about for you? Yes um, I chose those words which as you know come from the ending of Dante's great masterpiece the greatest work in Italian literature the Divine Comedy in which he explores a whole view of the cosmos um, and at the end he has this vision um, in which he he says I can't possibly explain to you this vision but he conveys how powerful it was to him of the founding principle of the cosmos being love and that it is therefore love that moves the sun and the other stars the final words of the of the um, divine comedy uh, in paradise and this resonates with me very much because what I'm articulating at the moment and only hinted at in The Master and His Emissary is the importance of two forces um, throughout everything, in physics, in psychology, in culture, in personal relationships, in the arts, in everything, and indeed in nature, is a balance between a force that distinguishes, differentiates and separates and a force that draws things together. And um, Empedocles, who's um, an early Greek philosopher, thought that there were effectively two principles in the cosmos that were in a constant circular dance and they were the force of love and the force of strife and that these two made things happen. Um, Heraclitus, who is my very favourite philosopher of all time, said that war is the father of all things. But if that's the case, what he was talking about there is a sort of tension between things. But it's also true, that he said, war is the father of all things. And I like to add, yes, and peace, i.e. union, is the mother and queen of all things, because we need both these forces. But, get this, we need the force for union and the force for distinction, but we need them to be unified. So at a separate level, one step up, union and division need to be brought together. So overall, the loving force is the one that actually combines everything. So there is conflict, there is strife, there is suffering, and there is wonder and there is awe. But in the end, it's the vision of the whole which is what the right hemisphere understands, that is able to draw these two apparently opposing forces together in a union. And that 
if I may use an image which is very much closer to home than the one I've been using, because I've been going off there into the cosmos, but um, it's very important understanding to me as a psychiatrist um, and as a living human being who hasn't always managed this particular question as well as I might, that in a really flourishing relationship, it's not good if there is either too much fusion or too much separation. In other words, a good relationship is like two planetary bodies that circulate around one another and they don't fly apart into space and they don't crash together, but they stay in orbit around one another at a certain what I call necessary distance. So in order to keep the individuality of each party within a relationship flourishing and yet for the relationship to be flourishing requires that each should be an individual as much as possible you need to keep what I call a necessary distance between fusion over much union and over much separation. That's really interesting is it do you mean uh, having a sense of a sort of independence from your partner as well as being uh, as well as being a unit. Yes, it's not a contrast. So it's not two opposites in the ordinary sense we think of as opposites. One of the themes of my book is that opposites nourish one another. So that, if I may just gloss what you're saying, I agree with that. But it's not like you have to sacrifice a bit of togetherness in order to get individuality, or you have to sacrifice a bit of your individuality to get togetherness. The way I see it is that in a proper relationship, you both are maximally together and maximally fulfilled as individuals, because you fulfill one another as individuals. We're never just an individual in a bubble. We become the individual we are through relationships, which sounds paradoxical, but all truths, all great truths, as Niels Bohr, the physicist, said, you know, are paradoxical in nature. And love, one of those things that I think feels very connected to love is, is the soul and what is the soul. And I think especially nowadays when people talk about the soul, sometimes people kind of reject it because it's a, you know, too ethereal or an airy-fairy term. And I wanted to ask you about the soul because is the soul where we feel love from? Because it feels like it's something that science can't really explain. Or is it the absolute essence of us without any kind of ego? That's a very, very, very good question and a difficult one, as you say, when you say it's hard to talk about. I think all the really important things in life and in the cosmos in general are diminished as soon as you talk about them, which is why in almost every culture um, the name of the divine being, whatever you conceive that being to be, is off limits. The soul is in the same category and like love it's the sort of thing that one can capture through art better than through um, just talking in the way we normally do. It's very hard to pin down what it actually is, but if we lose it, we've lost something very valuable. I'm wondering if the, it is the essence, the true essence of us. And I was I was speaking to a, a friend the other day, a very wise friend, and I said to her about this person in my life, I said, oh, I feel kind of uncomfortable when I speak to this person, but also at the same time, it's lovely because it feels like they are looking straight into my soul which can be uncomfortable, but it can also be a very nice feeling. And she said, no, I actually disagree with that. 
I don't think that person is looking into your soul. I think the reason why you feel uncomfortable is because they are they can see the things that are blocking your soul. So they are seeing the things that you don't want that person to see, which actually is just very human because we're all flawed human beings. And I thought that was really interesting, which which made me think perhaps the soul is just the absolute essence, the truth, without all those things such as anger and fear that are blocking it. I certainly wouldn't necessarily jump to the conclusion that what they're seeing is what you're trying to block out possible but I suspect that when you feel somebody is really looking into your soul you're experiencing something which is true that they are actually really attending to you one of the things that I feel very strongly about love is that it has to do with the nature of attention and there is um, an early 20th century French philosopher called Louis Lavelle who said, um, la charité est une pure attention à l'existence d'autrui. In other words, um, love, la charité, love is a pure attention to the existence of the other. And that is, that is a really, it's almost like one of the, the greatest pieces of wisdom I have ever heard. And it speaks to me about everything in life, your relationship with your friends, with your loved ones, with works of art. And for me as a psychiatrist, I no longer practice, but with patients, that for a time you give them your total attention and you're not actually thinking about yourself here. You're actually entering into their being. And here we come back to that thing I was saying about education, that it's about understanding not how to judge other people by your standards, but instead feeling your way into other ways of being in other cultures at other times and seeing what was in the heart of the person who wrote this poem in allowing the music to speak to you and not trying to articulate it. And, you know, so that that's another very important aspect of what I believe love to be, a pure attention to the existence of the other. Yeah, and I think maybe that's what I was saying about that person looking into you, that actually they see all those things, not just the good things, but the... But everything, and and perhaps sometimes that is quite uncomfortable because you you know you, you you're a full person with so many different feelings aspects. So maybe that's where the uncomfort lies. Um, but just going back to attention, one of actually the best pieces of advice that anyone ever gave me was to pay attention. And they said that it confused me because I thought, what do you mean pay attention? And actually, when I thought about it, what that as what you are saying is pay attention to every aspect of your life. And I'm wondering, do we find this through a sort of peace and quiet and silence that the, that the Buddhists talk about? Um, because I think a lot of people intellectually understand that, but find, that, find it very hard to, to feel that or find that in themselves. Um, yes, I mean, of course, we can't possibly pay attention to everything all the time and especially not at the same time but what I mean is to give yourself to what you are currently in relationship with at this minute and therefore to be present not away somewhere in your head at a time in the future at a time in the past uh, or thinking of what witty thing you can say next but actually paying attention to the being that is happening there's something I call betweenness which is very relevant to the idea of love and it's not just the fact of a relationship, but it's like an image of this might be the two poles of an electric 
circuit. There's got to be a positive, there's got to be a negative. Where is the electricity? Is it in the positive terminal? No. Is it in the negative terminal? No. Is it in the space between them? No, not really. It's in the two terminals and the space between them and what comes from the union of them all. So back to the idea of separation and union. So in a relationship, it's not just you, it's not just me, and it's not just whatever it is that happens to connect us. It's the whole new whatever, a new whole that comes into being because of you and me being together. So that that's the sort of thing. And we have to accept in the other and in ourselves the dark side, you know, this is Jung's idea, but it's just so important. As a psychiatrist, again, it's another absolutely core insight. So many people came to me with fears, anxieties and depression because they just couldn't accept that they had failings, you know. And I'd say, well, you know, join the club, you know. Um, and there used to be a book, <laughs> used to be a book called I'm All Right, You're All Right, you know. And I used to think, puke, you know. And I, I said, there should be a book called I'm Not All Right, You're Not All Right. But that's all right, you know, because that's those are the terms on which we live life. And people who come to terms with their dark side, not in the sense of condoning it, not in the sense of not doing your best to, you know, resist it, but being aware of it fully and forgiving it, but sort of constantly working at overcoming it, that is the right frame of mind. If you don't do that and you blot it out and go, oh, I've got to be perfect, then whatever it is comes back and bites you in the bum, you know, in the form of big mental illness. But why do we find that so hard to accept? I think it's intrinsically difficult for people to, to acknowledge their faults. I think there are a number of things that come into that. A thoroughly toxic culture of high self-esteem, paradoxically, because it leads to low self-esteem. Um, there was a, a very brilliant, I think, psychologist called Roy Baumeister, who was a big um, proponent of the cult of high self-esteem in the 80s. And he's completely changed his mind because he realised it actually re led to the opposite and that people who have high self-esteem are nauseating, narcissistic and impossible to get on with. And that actually um, it's much more important to have a balance, to know that you have your good things and your bad things you're not necessarily better than other people you're not necessarily worse you don't know the full story of other people's lives and you don't know what it's true of them so um, and a, a friend wrote to me to say that he had a Japanese friend and he tried to explain what self-esteem meant in the west and this Japanese friend said that's sick and I, I really get that because I'm not proposing that we should not have a decent sense of oneself. That's a very important thing. But it's not the same as having high self-esteem. Um, and so I used to work with a lot of people who had no self-esteem to try and improve it. And lots of people whose self-esteem was so bloody high that they were making life odious for themselves and everybody else. So it's really, as ever in life, it's a harmony of opposites. It's bringing things to a point of balance and harmony. And love is a harmony. It's not an extreme. It's a harmony. And paradoxically, out of that harmony can come something that is extremely beautiful and extremely hard to articulate. Ian, I just want to do a quick, uh, quick change of pace. Mm. Uh, I really would like to talk to you about memory because mm. uh, for me, the, the feeling of love um, often comes from that place of memory and nostalgia. And for example, if I'm listening to a piece of music um, and I'm moved by it, I think often I'm moved by it because I'm thinking of 
somebody that I love or I'm thinking of uh, a memory and I feel nostalgic. And I, I just wanted to ask you your thoughts on memory and love, really, and how they connect. Memory obviously plays a very substantial part in who we are and how we respond to things. So uh, very reasonably enough, we use past experience as a measure. So being aware of the past and so forth is, is good, but it can have its downside in that one can spend, one can be overcommitted to the past in the sense that one cannot accept change or that one cannot accept the loss of something. I mean, here I'm talking about something quite deep, and I think that you can't have life without death. And unless you're very, very lucky, you won't have love without at least some kinds of loss. Um, so I think the key, again, is being thankful for what is good, present with what is good, and not mourning the past because it can't be changed and accepting it, forgiving it, letting it go, really. Uh, that's what I'd say. Of course, it comes into your experience of anything very moving, your memory, as I say, but it's what you do with your memory. It's whether you, whether you miss out on the now because you're too committed to memory. I think change is a... It can be a tricky thing. I certainly find it tricky. I'm getting better as I get older, but change is, is hard, I think. There's that sense of loss. When something changes, you're losing something. Um, but I think, as you say, you, 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 you won't have love without loss. So they, they, they kind of are hand in hand, in a way. I think that's right. Um, you know, and it is true that... You never know what is going to produce good um, and what's going to produce bad. Very often good things come out of bad situations and very often bad things come out of pursuing things that you thought at the time were good. So we have to accept what is going on intelligently and generously and try and be grateful for it. I mean, the way I look at it is I've, I've had a bloody good life. I'm 67. Um, you know, I'm looking at the end of my life, really. And it, even if it were to go on for much longer, I wouldn't really welcome it going on at a very old age because I think the loss is there. Living a long life is also a loss if it goes on too long. So I've a long time come to terms with the idea that I'm, I'm going to die fairly soon. And that is a wonderful liberation because I don't have to spend time feeling afraid of it. Instead, it sharpens my enjoyment. So every day that I'm alive is another gift and another gift and another gift, you know, and I can go out in the garden. And, you know, love is something one has with nature. So my, I have a lovely garden, but the garden is also set in a magnificent setting of hills and, and, and rivers and the sea. And that's a kind of love, you know, and I, I feel it as I go around and I, you know, may think I'm going potty or, uh, but I mean, rather like Prince Charles, I do sort of say to the flowers, you know, sometimes bless you, you know, for giving me such joy. Well, I think that's a kind of love really, isn't it? Um, and if you can, it is. if you can, it absolutely is. you can be there with things that give you joy and not spend too long fretting over the things that can't be changed, you know. That's a very good way to go forward. And it probably yeah. is a bit Buddhist. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Just oh, so beautiful. 
Um, I'm coming to the end, but I, I think maybe this question is maybe should have come earlier. But I do think it's an important thing perhaps to talk about is the pandemic that we're going through at the moment. Is that more of a concern for the left hemisphere? It doesn't have to be one or the other because we're whole human beings and use both our hemispheres. But living with uncertainty and having no control uh, is something the right hemisphere is capable of doing. But the left hemisphere finds induces anxiety. So people who get very anxious in this situation tend to be people who have a belief that they can control things more than other people will have and who have a need for certainty um, more than other people will have. And, th- and as I say, those are left hemisphere features very strongly. And it's a general factor in our culture that we prize control much too highly and, contri- and, and prize certainty much too highly. Actually, when you come to look at it, there's very, very, very little in life that you're in control of, starting with um, when you were born, who your parents are, um, your appearance, your your height, your, your, your intelligence. A lot of these things are just innate. And there you are. That's what your personality, too. So you're born with all those things. And then as you live, stuff happens, you know, all the time. And most of it, almost all of it, is completely out of your control. So the business of life is not trying to make an outcome you want happen, but surfing the wave. You know, here comes the wave. Let me get on it and make use of it and go wherever it's going to take me and just keep your mind open in that way. And embrace life with gratitude and a feeling of love whenever you can find it. You know, that that it sounds terribly trite, I know, but you see, all the great things are trite once they're articulated. And Ian, I finish with these three questions, which I'd love you to answer, if that's okay with you. What do you do for self-love? Struggle. Um, I've not been very good at it. Um, I think of it as self-acceptance. Uh, without that taking away from the positive aspect of it. I think love is very largely a matter of acceptance and being grateful. Um, And so I try to see the best in other people and in myself. But all my life I have struggled. Uh, I don't find it at all easy. Um, But I do, I have... I'm not religious in the sense of going to church, but I do think the spiritual aspect of life is fantastically important. I think it's the great, probably the greatest loss in our society is that we've lost the habit of being grateful to something beyond the immediate um, and being in touch with that something beyond the immediate. So I pray, um, not as often as I should do, but part of that is very much acceptance and openness, so listening, not just talking. And out of that, a lot of healing comes. Um, There's a wonderful prayer, which I won't say, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was imprisoned by the Nazis and finally killed, um, who was a priest or theologian at any rate, um, had this wonderful short prayer, which is about um, acceptance of the dark and the the bad as well as the good, and, and praise. And I think it's fantastically good. So I try to say that quite often. That helps. That's lovely. It's interesting that you say you find self-love hard and a lot of your work has been helping other people that find self-love <laughs> yes. challenging. That's really interesting. I think a lot of things I've done have been to help other people find things I've struggled to find. And 
How do you show someone you love them? I'm a I'm a naturally demonstrative person, um, perhaps to my detriment. Um, my parents always used to say, it's no good pretending, Ian, we can read you like an open book. And <laughs> I've discovered that in, <laughs> discovered in life um, that I just have to be honest. Um, so if I love somebody, I tell them so, and I give them a hug, you know. And, and with my children, the thing I love, and I'm not often with them, especially since COVID, of course, I haven't seen any of them. But because of where I live, I don't see them very frequently. And my, my older daughter is in California, where she's working as a nurse in a, an area that has, you know, COVID problems. So I, I don't do much of all of that. But I think, you know, it's, it's simple things like that. And I don't think it's about giving, uh, except of yourself and time. Mm-hmm. And as we said before, attention. Attention, attention, yes. Your attention. Yes. And what's the piece of music or song that fills you with love? Whoa. Oh, gosh. I find so much of music does. Um, it also often fills me with a sort of sense of something wild and and potentially sad at the same time, but... But the fact of it being so beautiful takes it up again into a realm of love. So it's a very hard one to answer. Um, There's a wonderful uh, song by Richard Strauss called Morgan, um, which means morning. Um, And it's uh, for solo soprano and, well, it doesn't have to be a soprano, but I happen to know the version by Elizabeth Schwarzkopf with a, um, a solo violin. And it's extraordinarily beautiful and expressive of a kind of love. I think that's probably, if I had to say specifically love, that would be something I would go for. Yes. Mm. Beautiful. Mm. I have to listen. <laughs> well, if, if for, for the listeners, um, Ian has an has official web platform which welcomes members and non-members where you can see interviews and videos at Channel McGilchrist, which I am actually a member of. Thank you so, so much for coming on. I honestly, I just, there's so much more I wanted to, to, to <laughs> discuss and ask, but maybe we can do it another time because it's really been yeah, it, unbelievably fascinating. Oh, Thank that's you. That's really nice of you and it's been a joy for me, so maybe we'll do it again another time. I hope so. I would love that. On another subject. On another subject. Another feeling. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you so much for listening and I hope it was as interesting and as useful to you as it was for me. It would mean the world to me if you could rate and subscribe and maybe even share it with a friend so that other people can hear about us. Join me next week where I will be speaking to another wonderfully inspiring guest. Until then, take care.